When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last nine years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we're going to do an all-questions-considered episode of the podcast this week. That means featuring from start to finish listener mail from the beloved listeners of the Co-Main Event podcast. Before we get into that, though, uh, we did want to spare some time at the beginning of the show to talk about the two main event fights uh, from Bellator and the UFC over the weekend, since the rest of the show will be a bit of a grab bag. But before that, we wanted to shout out our guy, Chris Rinney, longtime listener of the Co-Main Event Podcast and beloved patron of the Co-Main Event Podcast, talented artist, Chris Rinney, who has a new book coming out, volume two uh, in his works here, The Fine Art of Violence. And uh, I got we both got to look at an advanced copy of this one, and we saw The Fine Art of Violence, volume one, when it came out. And I don't know, man, Chris Rennie, one of the best out there working, good guy, amazing artist, that people should check out his work. Yeah, I was looking through it earlier today. Some good stuff in there, man. Good work there. Even there's a, there's a, I don't want to call it quite a caricature drawing, but a a drawing of MMA photographer Esther Lin, where it feels like you you've captured something, my friend. You've captured an essence of the person. Well done. So if you like fights and you like art, you might want to check out Chris's work. Uh, like I said, one of the best guys out there working. So check out the Fine Art of Violence, Volume Two. All right, let's get into this thing here. We got a lot of ground to cover, a lot of messages from the the listeners out there to get through. Friday night, Ben, we had Bellator 259 coming to us from the Mohegan Sun Arena out there at the granddaddy of them all, Uncasville, Connecticut, headlined by Chris Cyborg against Leslie Smith for the women's featherweight title. Chris Cyborg wins this one with a TKO during the last 10 seconds of a 25-minute five-round fight. She really batters Leslie Smith from start to finish here. We had a discussion on Friday during the power hour about Chris Cyborg's incredible longevity, essentially as 
you know, one, if not the top female fighter in the world for essentially an uninterrupted decade and her ability to, I guess, grow and change with the times was kind of on display during this fight because you have 35-year-old Chris Cyborg out there uh, really showing a lot of evolution as far as I'm concerned in, in terms of how she approaches the game. Obviously, the tenacity is still there. The punching power is still there. The aggressiveness is still there. But it's a little bit tempered now, and she is perfectly content to go out there and kind of pick you apart with straight punches. And also, in this fight against Leslie Smith, work in a whole bunch of different kinds of takedowns that uh, that were nice and, and got the fight where she wanted to be in the moment. And, of course, she wins with the late TKO. Uh, what can you say about a 35-year-old version of, of Chris Cyborg who has spent her career atop the mountain of women's MMA and, at this point, you know, at a time when, when a lot of athletes would probably be slowing down, looks like she has found a way to continue not only to be competitive, but to be dominating and, you know, may well be poised to be the Bellator women's featherweight champion essentially for as long as she wants to be. Yeah. She doesn't go out there and fight anymore. Like she needs to get rid of you right away. Yeah. She fights like she's not really concerned. She got nowhere special. She's got to be. And she's going to take her time and do this thing as well and as thoroughly as she needs to do it. And you're right that when you're looking at all the stuff that she can do now, and if you're trying to come up with a game plan of how you're going to beat Cyborg, I guess if you can't just draw up your perfect fighter and say, okay, be faster and stronger than she is and have better one-punch power or just an incredible chin, I don't know what you come up with just athletically and game plan wise to beat Chris Cyborg with. There's just not a whole lot of people out there who can do it. And then especially if you're thinking about there's, as we've talked about before in the, the bigger weight classes in the women's divisions, like 145 and up, there's not a ton of talent to choose from when you split them between Bellator and the UFC. It seems like you're putting a big fish in an even smaller pond. Yeah, that's one of the things about Chris Cyborg, I guess, that um, her detractors would point to throughout the the high highlights of her career. And not only did she test positive for steroids back in 2011 in the wake of her last fight in Strike Force uh, and served a suspension for that, but at, at times, especially in the in the Elite XC and maybe now in the uh, in the Bellator days, there's been times when it seemed like she was having fights against people who were brought in basically as showcase opponents for Cyborg, uh, basically for Cyborg to beat them up on television and make Cyborg look extremely dominating. At the same time, though, as we talked about on Friday during the Power Hour, she also fought pretty much all of the best opposition that was available to her in and around her weight class throughout her entire career. Gina Carano, Marlouz Kunin twice, uh, Charmaine Tweet, Leslie Smith twice now, Lena Landsberg, Tanya Evinger, Holly Holm. Obviously, the loss to Amanda Nunes at UFC 232, which is the other thing you can look to as a uh, a drawback, I guess, in the career of Chris Cyborg. But then Felicia Spencer, Julia Budd, and now Leslie Smith. The last three of her fights, of course, coming in Bellator. Um, I don't know. <sighs> You look at Cyborg, she's she's clearly a draw. She's clearly an attraction. People like to watch her fight. You'd, you'd have to guess there would be a Kat Zingano bout coming up here yeah. in Bellator uh, in her immediate future. 
Um, how do you think she should be regarded, not only in terms of legacy, but also the position that she holds in the sport today as this, you know, Bellator featherweight champion in a in an organization that's just vying for eyeballs and in a division that is not crowded with with the greatest talent out there? Yeah, it does seem like there's some limited things here and there that you can build to. And the Kat Zingano fight seems like that's going to be the next one. And, that you know, I imagine Bellator can, can work up some pretty good hype for that one if they really put their their shoulders into it. But I think when we do look back on Chris Cyborg's legacy, whenever it ends, I mean, for Christ's sake, if you tell me Chris Cyborg is doing this for 10 more years, I, I absolutely believe you. I think that the thing that will will really stand out to us is the dominance over such a long period of time. Like the yeah. longevity and how good she was and how she managed to just completely decimate some of these divisions and, and so, like some of the, the rosters that she was faced with. How thoroughly for just how many years? Because we talked about it before with a few other male fighters where she has spanned different eras, especially of women's MMA. The, that old, like, Elite XC, Gina Carano era, she was the dominant force then, and then she's, you know, she was the dominant force up until she met Amanda Nunes in the UFC, now dominating Bellator, and she's still really, really good. Just on a technical level, just watching her fight, you go, that person is really, really good at fighting. Yeah. And there aren't many people who can do it for that long and be that good at it. Yeah, it's hard to think of anyone else in the landscape of the sport who has been as dominant as Chris Cyborg over such a long period of time, more than a decade, really. And as you mentioned, dominant throughout several different phases of the evolution of the sport around her. And at the same time, like you look at the the criticisms that you can make of her, and you can also make many of those same criticisms about the top male fighters, especially from those time periods, whether it be performance-enhancing drug scandals or not fighting people that you feel like represent the cream of the crop. And and Cyborg just kind of continues to to cruise along and at times seemingly be sort of unfairly maligned just in terms of uh, the weight of the criticism, right? I feel like Chris Cyborg has encountered more and more bitter criticism uh, for her drawbacks than a lot of her male counterparts who would be in the same position. Um, and, and I think that's unfortunate, but has been a reality of the evolution of women's MMA and Chris Cyborg has been, uh, out in front of it. And one of the people who has gotten a lot of the harshest and at times most unfair criticism. And I don't know, man, to see her out there at this stage in the game, still essentially overwhelming people like Leslie Smith, still carrying a major title in a major organization, still essentially taking on all comers, anyone that, that, uh, that her current promoter can find for her to fight. I don't think you could ever make the case that Cyborg ducked or avoided anyone. And so yeah. it's pretty amazing, man, to see her continue to to work that magic and work that game and an evolving game, like I said, at this stage in her career. It's pretty incredible. You know, the one bone I have to pick with Showtime's, you know, Bellator stuff right now so far is that I'm I'm going in there and I'm trying to watch it on the streaming app. Yeah. That's how I subscribe to Showtime. Going in there on my smart TV, opening up the Showtime app. Like, I want to find a way to tell it, like, hey, look, man, if there's a Bellator on tonight, show me that Bellator first thing. Like, that's what I came here for. I don't need to be attacked by my own viewing history on the Showtime app, which is what's happening right now, Chad. I don't need to be reminded when I'm trying to go in there and I'm trying to watch Chris Cyborg and Leslie Smith. 
you don't need to make a big deal out of it, Showtime, that the last two things I watched late at night were the movie Rad, the 1980s BMX film, Rad, and an episode, like, uh, like 12 minutes of an episode of Gigolos. You don't need to just throw that in my face, Showtime. Give me the Bellator stuff. You okay. know that's why I'm here. It's not it, 2 a.m. Okay. I'm not trying to watch Rad again. It sounds to me like you are living in a prison of your own making. <laughs> like, you want the Showtime streaming app to, to read your mind. And be like, oh, just, Bellator's look. on. This is what, what Ben is going to want to watch. Yes. They, we're, they mm-hmm. were talking about uh, a computer algorithm here, my friend. It's it's not sitting next to you on the couch. It doesn't know what you want to watch at that moment. As far as it knows, you want to watch all of the 80s BMX bike movies that they got in the library. If it's 1.30 a.m., then fine. Then that's when you, Showtime app, can say to me, would you like to watch the next episode of Gigolos? Do you want to see what those gigolos get up to? Are they going to do any kind of thing where they have like a a zany experience with fake tanning, but then also have to seduce a a wealthy heiress later that night? Then that's the time for that. If it's, you know, Bellator time on a Friday night, give me the Bellator. Uh, You're just asking a lot. You're asking a lot is all I'm saying. We're living in the future. All right, well, on Saturday night, we had the UFC uh, down there at the Apex Arena. Kind of a a low-key card, if you will, but Rob Font in the main event gets a unanimous decision victory over over Cody Garbrandt in an important men's bantamweight contender fight, I guess. Uh, For Garbrandt, Ben, this was the first time we had seen him in nearly a year, and he had some pretty highly publicized struggles with uh, long-term complications from COVID-19. He had pneumonia. He he had an, an issue where he couldn't train. He was suffering from some vertigo. And, you know, I, I want to talk about Rob Font. Don't want to take anything away from his win that, that I think sets him up to be a contender here moving forward. But you really get the impression when you watch this fight that it is a tough order for Cody Garbs to come in with that much in, inactivity and that much illness. And I guess we can't know for sure how much or how little the COVID-19 stuff affected his performance in the cage, but uh, it would have been rough to come in after almost a year off without any debilitating illness and fight a contender at the level of Rob Font. And I think you really saw that difficulty all over Cody Garbrandt throughout this fight uh, because he started strong and then Rob Font seemed to figure him out a little bit. And then Garbrandt really seemed to struggle. Uh, throughout basically from the from the second round on through this thing and got extremely high on the Coleman index uh, turned absolutely bright pink uh, very early in the fight gets gets battered throughout the rest of it and ultimately suffers the loss here Uh, it just seemed like a lot for Cody Garbrandt to have to deal with in this fight not only the inactivity but also um, maybe not being able to train over a long period of time the way he is accustomed to and then coming in against a guy as sharp and talented as Rob Font was just a, a too tall of an order here for the comeback fight for for the former champion. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think that he – like you, you talk about him turning bright pink. I think a lot of that is just because he's being pasted in the face over and over again by Toward a the really end. crisp striker. Well, yeah, I mean, he he's – I think that that's – a lot of that is that he's getting beat up and – He's, he's getting tired because he's trying to find a way to, to turn that around and just keeps getting thumped on. 
But I, I do agree that, you know, Michael Bisping mentioned it at some point during the commentary. And yeah. I shout almost, out, by the way, shout out to Michael Bisping for bringing that yeah. up during the UFC yeah, broadcast it, when a couple of weeks ago, Dana White essentially came out and said that UFC commentators are either uh, encouraged or flat out told to not talk about the pandemic. So uh, good on Michael yeah, Bisping and, for bringing up one of the most uh, pertinent storylines for this fight. I'm glad we didn't go through the whole thing and just pretend like that hadn't happened. Right. And it did not feel like in the lead up to it that at least the UFC was super interested in spending a whole lot of time highlighting that, that, that Cody Garbrandt had been dealing with that. I mean, obviously yeah. it came up, you know, as he's talking to the media beforehand and everything, but it did feel like kind of a jarring switch. And I don't know if it was just that, that that's Michael Bisping going rogue because he knew this is a, a legitimate thing that needs to be discussed and needs to be put out there. Or if maybe that restriction has loosened a little bit now that it feels like, okay, we're exiting this pandemic. We can have live events with fans again, and we don't have to worry about it so much. Go ahead and talk about it when it, when it feels relevant to what's going on. And it definitely feels relevant here because, you know, he, he, I think Michael Bisping did a good job with it because he was like, I, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to take away from Rob Font here. I'm not saying this is the only reason for what we're seeing, but that definitely, it was not that long ago. I mean, it was in December we were still talking about stuff that Cody Garbrandt was dealing with, that he is dealing with blood clot stuff, vertigo stuff. You know, when he talks about it, he tells you like it's, it seemed like it was pretty serious and really, really going to impact your ability to do anything. And then to be able to get back in there, get back in shape and come in and fight a guy as good as Rob Font, where if your timing's a little bit off, that guy can really exploit it. And it seemed like that, like Cody Garbrandt was in a situation, especially later in this fight, where he was really trying to rely on like, let me see if I can get this guy to walk into a big shot. And Rob Font had that shit scouted, man. You see Cody Garbrandt get up against that fence, start to dip down with that right hand like he's just like trying to power up the the knockout blow like like he did, you know. And you could see Rob Font look at him and be like, Mm-mm, no, you know what? I'm going to walk back here to the middle of the cage. I invite you to join me. Come, come on over here. I'm not going to walk into that like hammer of the gods kind of situation. And it seemed like, okay, Cody Garbrandt early on realized – Maybe I have a little bit of a wrestling advantage over this guy. Like, he, and he had said before, apparently to the, the commentators beforehand that he planned to wrestle him some, wrestles him some in the first round, takes him down early in the second round. And then it's like Rob Font figured that shit out too. And credit to him for making really good adjustments and, and going, coming in there with a, a clear game plan. Like, I want to jab him. I want to, I want to pick him apart with better, faster, crisper striking, but I don't want to stand there and trade power shots and trade hooks in close with Cody Garbrandt and then being able to adjust to a little bit more of a wrestling game plan when he saw it like that's a really good performance from Rob Font it's also asking a whole hell of a lot of Cody Garbrandt to come right back in after all that first fight back you fight you know the number three bantamweight in the world yeah and for Rob Font he's won four fights in a row now five of his last six these last two a TKO over Marlon Marais back in December, and now this pretty dominant unanimous decision win over Cody Garbrandt uh, at this fight night event would seem to set him up as a top contender. I'm going to segue here into our first listener mail question from Sean Diggity McIntosh, who writes, Hey there, knuckleheads, which seems uncalled for. 
Uh, and then he says, let's but not get right, inaccurate, you know, not in, not inaccurate, but maybe uncalled for. Let's get straight to the point. Who do you see holding the bantamweight strap at this time next year? Sterling, Yawn, Sandhagen, Dillashaw or Font. Uh, it's a wide open division right now. Seemingly to me, you've got uh, Aljamain Sterling obviously holding the title after that fight where uh, Peter Yawn cheated so bad they had to take the title away from him. And now uh, Aljamain Sterling has opted for some surgery that he had been putting off. So it sounds like it's going to be a little while at least before he returns. I, you know, depending on what Aljamain Sterling's timeline is, Ben, I'm not sure that I would be terribly surprised to see an interim title happen at some point in this division. Uh, a lot of that obviously will depend on Sterling and his ability and willingness to get back in the cage. But uh, I think you, you got, you know, you, you have at least a decent chance at some point in the near future of having a, a, a unification fight here. I would think b- between an interim champion, perhaps in Peter Yan and uh, the undisputed champion at Aljamain Sterling and whoever emerged with that belt, where you go from there, I think honestly is anybody's best guess, but uh, heartening to see this many top contenders, a bunch of 135 pound guys all circling the title. No matter what happens, it's going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. And all those fights that you could make where they are seem like they're going to be fun, but it is, it does highlight the difficult spot that Rob Font is in right now, because I think what coming into this, I think he was sitting at number three at 135 pounds in the UFC. And now it's like the guys ahead of him. I think it's, it's like Sanhagen, Peter Yan, and then the champion, Aljamain Sterling. You got to think if Aljamain Sterling's timeline to come back is at any time soon, he and Peter Yan probably going to do it again. Corey Sandhagen already is, you know, at least we're trying to reschedule that fight with TJ Dillashaw last. I don't know if we got a firm date on that one yet when it's rescheduled for. Um, but it puts Rob Font in a situation where if he's going to fight somebody and he can't just sit around forever waiting for an opportunity, he has to fight someone down the rankings. And he's already beaten several of those people down the rankings from him. Uh, one idea I heard thrown around a little bit was like, hey, what about somebody like Dominic Cruz, where he has a name. He's looking to get back in the picture. Uh, if you're Dominic Cruz, you might be thinking, hey, if Rob Font's way up there, if I can come in there and beat him, then I'm immediately in that title conversation again and don't have to you know, try to work my way back up the ladder one rung at a time. So you could see how it makes sense for both people. But, uh, I mean, if you ask me to guess, like, who is going to be the champ this time next year. Still, my best guess is Peter Yan. Because, I mean, you mentioned it. He cheated so bad they had to take the title away from him. But he was looking pretty good in a lot of ways against Aljamain Sterling in that fight. I think he matches up pretty well against everybody here. If, as long as he can keep from cheating his ass off. And cheating, you know, in a way that's so, that, you know, not regular cheating. Not right. like Dundasso, you can get away with it and we'll, we'll shake our finger and say like naughty Peter kind of at you, but like the kind of cheating that'll get you straight up disqualified. If you can avoid that, I think he beats most of these people. Yeah. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Adolf Coors. Oh, good. So. Good to hear from him. Yep. Uh, spare a couple minutes for Jack. Oh, you growing a beard now. Damn son, her man son. So, uh, that's a long one. That's a ponderous nickname for Jack Hermanson. Nonetheless, I mean, he's not grown it. He has done growed it. He has you know? done growed it in. 
he emerges with the unanimous decision win over Edmund Shabazi, and this is in the uh, middleweight curtain jerker here, the main card on ESPN+. Plus. Now, see, Ben, I thought that this was a little bit of a weird one for Edmund Shabazian, who had been yeah. an undefeated top prospect at 11-0, and closing out 2019. And then I think we all kind of thought had bitten off more than he could chew, or at least matchmakers had given him a bit more than he could chew against Derek Brunson in August of last year. Uh, then he, t- you know, he's got damn near nine months off here. Like I think a lot of people you've seen during this pandemic having sort of an extended period where they didn't fight or couldn't fight or whatever to come in against a guy, the caliber of Jack Hermanson here uh, in this event is, is a little bit of a strange course to try to get the, the previous top prospect back on track because now you got a situation where Edmund Shabazian has suffered back to back losses and uh, you know, still a very young guy, obviously at 23 years old. So still has plenty of time to get things back together. And it's not like this is, by any stretch of the imagination, the end of the road for him or anything like that. But if I were an Edmund Shabazian handler, I would have thought it would have been better to not have two back-to-back losses. Uh, yeah. Some of that, some of my uh, acute st- strategizing there that I'm mm-hmm. known for, better not mm-hmm. to lose back-to-back fights. Yeah. But I don't know, man. Jack Hermanson, a tough draw, I think, for Edmund Shabazian, even though Hermanson comes in off the loss over Marvin Vittori at this point. Uh, Hermanson has won two of three, but uh, yeah, if I, I might have chosen a different path had I been Edmund Shabazian or one of his, uh, one of his managers at this point. This just seemed like a tough fight for him. Yeah, and I, I guess maybe the thinking here was we want him to be a thing, get him right back into that sort of conversation by putting him up against a guy like a known guy in the division and a. A guy who's hanging around contender status in the division. And I can see how matchup-wise, you know, in the first round, you see when Edmund Shabazian is moving around and popping out those crisp punching combos. You're like, man, okay, that guy has got some legit skills. And he's he's quick. Hermanson really seemed to have struggle with his speed early on. But, you know, and I'm not going to say, like, it's, it's, it's a terrible ground game or anything. But you get into these grappling exchanges against Jack Hermanson. Like, he had some, like let me get out of absolute dire trouble escapability. But when Hermanson kind of figured that out and was like, okay, I'm not going to fuck around anymore trying to take your back and choke here, trying to go to full mountain finish you. I'm going to just spend some time holding you down in half guard. He didn't have a whole lot of answers for that. And that right now you got to know people are going to look at you and think that the book is out. Like get through the first round with this guy, take him down, wear him down, wear him out. And that's how you can beat him. And people are going to be trying to do that until you show that you can stop it. Like we've talked about with other, like other people like Kevin Holland. Like once somebody does it to you once, be prepared for other people, especially if they struggle with the thing you do really well. They're going to try and do that other thing. They're going to try to follow that same blueprint. And it does seem like, especially because you mentioned Edmund Shabazzian only 23 and also has like Jack Hermans has more than twice as many pro fights. As Edmund Shabazian. And that, especially if you get into the second and third rounds and fight, everybody starts to get tired and everybody's slowing down a little bit. That kind of experience is going to make a big difference. And so that is like a really tough situation to put him in and does look like, I don't know if you thought you were doing him any favors, but you could maybe bring him along a little bit more slowly than taking him right out of that Derek Brunson fight, throwing him in a really tough one after that. Yeah. And if you're Edmund Shabazian, maybe the good news is that it seems like. Uh, the title picture is going to be 
in a bit of a log jam here for a while. You got Israel Adesanya against Marvin Vittori coming up, but then you got a whole fleet of contenders uh, about ready to fight each other and kind of circle in the title. Of course, uh, Robert Whitaker, Paulo Costa, um, you know, Jared Cannonier, Darren Till, all those guys are still kind of jockeying for position. So, uh, you know, if you, if you are part of the Edmund Shabazian camp, it's not like there's any reason to rush the guy. Let's, let's, let's get a few fights, you know, that we feel like are good matchups that, that we can get this kid back on, on a roll. And then, then maybe we start looking up the, the ranks in the top 10 to see, uh, where we're at, as far as I'm concerned, I just don't see that there's any reason to to rush him into future Jack Hermanson style matchups when you don't have to. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Michael Plater, who writes Carla Esparza versus Wiley Zhang? Question mark. So you had Carla Esparza come out uh, in the co-main event of this thing and and get a second round TKO over Yan Zhaozhan, uh women's strawweight fight. Uh, and really looked impressive, frankly, with the takedowns and just some savage ground and pound from Carla Esparza. She gets her fifth straight win. Uh, and man, I tell you what, it feels like a lifetime ago that Carla yeah. Esparza won the inaugural strawweight championship on the heels of that season of the Ultimate Fighter when she beat Rose Namajunas back in 2014. And maybe Carla Esparza is the kind of athlete that we forgot about for a while. Yeah. While other people were dominating this division and we had some other fun stuff going on, but now you wake up and she's got five wins in a row. And uh, this is an impressive one here on Saturday night. And I'll tell you what, she fights in a style that not a lot of people excel at in that division with good takedowns. And then as you saw, you know, this weekend, uh, able ground and pound ground and pound that she can use to finish you with, which in this weight class is not something that you see every day. Uh, Wiley Zhang would be an interesting matchup, although I think a difficult one for Carla Esparza. And uh, obviously, if you are Carla and you manage to climb all the way up to the top, you're, you might have a different fight on your hands in terms of taking down someone like Rose Namajunas and controlling her on the ground and battering her like we saw over the weekend. But I don't know, like kind of a feel good story as far as I'm concerned to see this former champion in Carla Esparza, who had seemingly been so forgotten and kind of left in the dust to now come roaring back to something approaching top contender status in this division. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I forgot about Carla Sparza. When I looked up and saw that she's won like five in a row, I was like, what? When did that happen? Where was I? Did I, did I get up to go to the bathroom during all those fights? Like it just, it really snuck up on me. And yet when you see her, especially this past weekend, you realize she has made some adjustments to stay competitive and stay relevant that, that that division, but she's made them in such a way that she's not gotten away from what she really does well. Like she hasn't tried to make herself into a completely different fighter, just like a a different and more adaptable version of the fighter that she's always been. And yet, I hate when I hear people talking about like, okay, five in a row, you know, and you beat somebody highly ranked in that division. Is that the time you get the a rematch with Rose Namajunas when you can point out like, hey, I have a win over the current champ. Let's let's run that one back and get something on the books. Uh, don't you feel like if the UFC is looking to make a rematch for Rose Namajunas for what I'm going to call business reasons, they are, would be more excited about making a rematch with Zhang Wiley than they would with Carlos Barza? Oh, for sure. Yeah, no doubt about it. And if those are your two options, yeah, that I don't think it's, I don't think it's really any question at all. Yeah, I mean, 
like even like hearing Dana White talk about it afterwards where it was like, okay, maybe we'll do this Rose Namajunas Carla Esparza thing if we have to. That felt like the vibe <laughs> that I was getting from it. Yeah, but at the same time, are you are you socked in a little bit here by the official rankings? Uh, not that the, not that they are the law of the land or anything like that. But when you got five straight wins and you just absolutely destroyed the person ranked number three overall, the person above you, the only people ranked above Carlos Sparza at this point, Ben, are the champion Rose Namajunas, uh, Zhang Weili, and Joanna Yajacek. So I agree with you that Carlos Sparza in some ways shapes up as a person who might have to win a couple more fights uh, before we start thinking that they have no choice other than to book her in a rematch for the title. Uh, but you're closing in on that territory just because there, there ain't a lot of other places to go here for Carlos Sparza. Uh, yeah. Then, then a title shot after I would think another fight or two. The nice thing about, if you do see a Rose Namajunas, Carlos Sparza rematch is that that would then give Rose Namajunas a chance. If she wins that, I believe then she would be able to say that she has beaten everybody who has ever held the UFC women's strawweight title. Wow. Well, there you go. I mean, lost to a couple of them, but also beaten every single one of them at least once. That's something. That's a nice that's a nice feather in the old cap. You know yeah, what I'm you saying? Bet. You bet. Next question this week comes to us from, uh, i got to go to the notes here, but this is Swedish death metal guitarist Olavi McConan. Okay. Na- nailed it on the pronunciation. He writes, so the Philadelphia Dragon Paul Felder announced his retirement on Saturday night's broadcast. He had previously semi-retired after the Dan Hooker fight, but came back for that ultra short notice fight versus RDA where he got pretty much whipped pillar to post. So I feel like this is one uh, is more likely to stick and less likely to be a hashtag MMA retirement. Can we pour one out for our homie and discuss how his career will be remembered? Uh, Yeah, I think Paul Felder is going to go down in... I guess UFC history, which seems like a weighty thing to say, but he will be remembered as as a a very good lightweight uh, who was also a good analyst and a nice dude and a guy who uh, obviously never got to the very top of the of the mountain, but at the same time fought in an era where there were some real dominant forces up there at the top of the uh, at the top of the division. Not everyone gets to be the champion. Not everyone. Uh, gets to be a Hall of Famer or an all-time great, but like, I don't know, man. If you're Paul Felder, I think you got to look back on what you did and be pretty happy about it. Yeah, and I, I think that when you look at some of his career, you see a guy who, like, some of these losses. I'm not saying that he he wouldn't have won them under different circumstances, or saying that he would have won them under different circumstances or anything. But you see some company guy stuff happening in the last couple of years for Paul Felder. Like, hopping in and taking that Rafael Dos Anjos fight is one. You know, going up to welterweight fighting Mike Perry there. Like, that's another one. Like, that's... he's He's got that win over Charles Oliveira, which I think a lot of people would be pointing to and saying, like, you know, hey, this... A lot of fighters, as soon as Charles Oliveira becomes champ and you're, I think, Mike Paul Felder was the last guy to beat him, that's when they would seize on that thing. And... Paul Felder's explanation of his retirement and everything and how he felt like how he just did not have that in him to do, I think kind of tells you that he's making the right choice at the right time and for the right reasons. Really? Like I I agree with the, the assessment that because of the situation and because of the way he explained it, it does feel like this this is one of those retirements that's going to stick. And 
honestly, I think he has done himself so many favors as a commentator and people have gotten to know him and like him so much in that role as a commentator that it makes them more favorably inclined to his to like a, a rosier view of his career when they start talking legacy at the end of it. Like, yeah, sure. Fine. You didn't win the big one. You didn't win a championship. You didn't win them all. Uh, had some wins, some lost some there toward the end of the career, but you're always a fun guy to watch. And we just have a, a favorable opinion of you in general. Like that, that makes for a strong legacy. I think. Yeah. One of the things that I admire about Paul Felder and have talked to him a couple times and like, he's just kind of a straight shooter in terms of uh, being honest about his place in the division and what he's been through and kind of his motivations as a fighter and how difficult it has become as he has gotten older uh, to continue to, to uh, get back and and train as hard as he wants and compete at the highest level. I'm just going to read a couple of quotes here, looking at the, uh, the MMA junkie story here by Danny Segura and Ken Hathaway is Felder's quote. He says, I don't think I'm going to, I don't think I'm going to get to the belt. I think this is the first time when I finally think after those two losses in a row, watching guys like Jocka Ray break their arm, watching guys like Cowboy fight five more fights past when I think they should, and I'm like, I'm not going to be that guy. I won't be that guy that fights past his expiration date, and I think it's here. I think it's a touch early, but I'd rather be a touch early than a touch late, And which is yeah. you know, a good thing to, to hear a fighter uh, say, and he goes on to say, I don't want to get hit in the head anymore. I don't have any major health concerns right now, but I've been in some battles and I've been in more battles, uh, than I've been in, in the octagon than I've been inside the room, the training room. Uh, he also talks about how, uh, it's been a long time since he's, or several months, at least since he has been in an MMA gym and hasn't really felt the, the fire to do it. And then he went and tried to hit pads for five rounds and said that he didn't enjoy himself and didn't feel the spark to, you know, get back into training or get back in, into to doing it at the level that he wants to do it. And so like for all of those reasons, it seems like a good choice for Paul Felder and one from a guy that I think we, that we can all respect for a lot of those reasons. Uh, and so like, he's still going to be around the sport. He'll still be in the broadcast booth in many ways. Uh, aside from the fighting, we will still get to experience like the best of what Paul Felder has to bring to the, to this sport. And so I'm happy for the guy, man. I hope that, uh, I hope that everything works out for him. Yeah, well, and uh, some of that stuff that he said by way of explanation, like, I think he said something along the lines of, like, how, like, his mother or somebody had said, like, hey, if you can't train in MMA or train fighting stuff every day, you'll go crazy. And he was like, I haven't trained it for, like, three months, and I feel fine. And that's, like, that maybe is a good sign to me that when, when I don't feel like I absolutely need it in my life and I feel like I'm interested in doing other things, that is probably a good sign to you. And I... It's rare that we see somebody who has the kind of self-awareness and the honesty with themselves to say some of this stuff, to be like, hey, I don't think I'm going to get the belt now. You know, yeah, I beat Charles Oliveira, but he's not the same guy now as he was when I beat him. You know, I could still talk myself into thinking that I can beat absolutely anybody on any, any given night. But if I'm honest with myself, I go, I'm not, I don't love this the way I once did. And if you're not going to be all the way in this and fully committed to this, it's better to be all the way out. I also think, though, that it helps that he has this option. He can be like, hey, I re- I'm going to retire, but still use the cachet I have built up in this sport as a different kind of career. Yeah. And granted, it's not like, you know, being a UFC commentator is the most secure form of employment. You know, that was one of Brian Stan's complaints about it. And that is still like a, the way they, they approach it. But he's really good at it. He was seemed like a natural at it right away. 
And so he has this sort of fallback option that a lot of other guys don't have. Where he could be like, you know what, I think I'll just do the thing where I sit there and I talk about the fights. And I get paid to do that instead and nobody punches me in the face. And a lot of other guys yeah. would love to have that option but don't really have it. And, you know, but this is the thing, like when we were talking before about how fighters make too big a deal about endings and career. Especially thinking about their legacy and, like, the legacy they're going to leave. They're always thinking about... What like I can't go out on that loss, or I can't go out on this bad stretch because they think that the the way it ends has such a a big effect on the way we see them, and we think you know maybe that is not quite the case. Even though he's going out, you know, on uh, two losses in a row, you can't really tell me that this isn't a happy ending in a way. You know, like Paul Felder goes out with like. Uh, respected by his peers, respected by the fans and the media, being able to sit there and it, like, to have decided on his own terms and then to, to be able to sit there and explain it to everybody in a way where we go, yeah, man, that makes sense. And like, we're impressed at like the eloquence and honesty with which you're able to talk about it. Like that is a happy ending. Even if he lost two straight at the end, that's not really what we're going to remember so much. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's absolutely a happy ending. Next question comes from Tracy Dickinson, uh, who writes, While I'm sad to see Paul Felder retire for purely selfish reasons, but I am very happy for him at the same time, I'm hoping this means that we'll see him commentating even more. He and Michael Bisping have become my favorite duo behind the desk. They're both extremely knowledgeable, quick-witted, will call it like they see it, and play off each other really well, in my opinion. Uh, do you have a current favorite duo or trio of the commentating teams that we've been seeing lately uh, for the UFC? The... Uh, the evolution of the UFC broadcast team has, has really been incredible to think of where we've come from, you know, from back in the day when it used to be Goldberg and Rogan pretty much every week out. And now we have a fleet of able, you know, either active or, or very close to active fighters who all kind of bring a slightly different flavor to the commentary booth. And I just, think more than anything, almost like the roster itself, the UFC has sort of an embarrassment of riches in terms of being able to switch it up with all of these different voices, all of these different opinions, all of these different approaches to being in the booth from someone who's very technical, like Dominic Cruz to all the way up to, uh, you know, someone like Michael Bisping, who's going to have a little bit more fun and, and be as honest as he wants to be. And then to a guy like Daniel Cormier, uh, who is, uh, you know, a clearly loving every second of being on the broadcast and, and wants to have as much fun with it as he can. Uh, and I, I'll be honest with you. There's no current fighter that shows up in the broadcast booth that I dislike. I think that they all do a really good job. Yeah, I agree. And that there's, and we're still given more of them a chance. Like Bala Muhammad got a chance to be on the analyst desk and everything. Like there are still other ones who can do this, who can fill this role and everything. And and you're right that to, to be able to have so many people come from the fighter side of it and be able to do this thing. I really like though, using retired fighters like Paul Felder and Michael Bisping, yeah. just because I think like when you use current fighters, there's just so many opportunities for, I don't even want to say conflict of interest because that sounds a little more official than it is, but just like they're still really enmeshed in that world, man. And yeah. there's still going to be stuff that affects the way that they commentate. Just it's going to naturally come up. And when people are more like they're already they're all the way out of the game 
And they know that Daniel Cormier is, you know, is another good example. And they're, and they're enjoying that, that fat and happy retired life and can just focus on just doing this. I feel like that's better for everybody. But I also feel like when you start to think about the embarrassment of riches that you have as far as like color commentary and the, the expert analysis coming from fighters who can be broadcasters. And then you got, you know, two good, you know, play by play guys that you can choose from. Doesn't it seem more and more like the odd man out here is Joe Rogan, who I know a lot of people just absolutely love. Fighters love Joe Rogan, and he's been there as a commentator for some of the sport's biggest moments, and his calls are sort of just like burned into the collective memory of this sport. But these days, as a Spotify multimillionaire, it seems like it's very clear that when you have all these other people doing a ton of research and they're very excited to come in here and work as commentators... And he is the one guy who's doing, like, the least of that, who seems to bring, like, the least rigorous preparation to some of these. Like, he's just kind of kind of show up and beat Joe Rogan, which maybe, you know, the UFC and ESPN love that and they're totally fine with that. But when you have so many of these other people who have, like, actual fighting experience and are good broadcasters and are also, like, this is their job now and they're really working hard at it and not, like, you know, just showing up, rolling in on, on, uh, you know, Saturday morning to do it and then roll back out and make hundreds of million dollars at their podcast, like this is it for them. I feel like we get more out of that these days than we get out of Joe Rogan. Yeah. And it feels like the commentary in general has entered a different era. Like when you get Joe back on the broadcast team and he immediately starts doing all of the Roganisms that he's so known for over the years, talking about how everyone is tired and everyone is rocked and there's Those nothing big he muscles, likes. Chad. Nothing he likes more than a series of leg kicks, uh, and every submission is a life ender. It's pretty jarring now to see it and to remember, like, oh, this is like the kind. This is what he does every time. This this is the thing. These are the things that he does. But I honestly think with with Joe, uh, who is a, a color commentator that I feel like I've lived several lives with, yeah, throughout these UFC broadcasts and have had a, a fleet of different opinions about over the years. I kind of feel like the million dollar question with him is going to be, does he even want to keep doing it? Like now that he has the $200 million in Spotify money, now that maybe his stand-up career isn't as tethered to the UFC as it was at one time. Cause remember like Rogan essentially used to make a week of it, man. Like he would yeah. go wherever the broadcast is going to be. Yeah. He would do stand up in the town on Thursday or Friday, and then he would do the UFC on Saturday, and then he would like go on to the next one. He doesn't have to do that anymore for mm-hmm. a lot of different reasons. The Spotify reason probably being the most significant, but like he has been doing it for so long, and his his professional circumstances have changed so much. You can tell he still loves the sport. I think he still likes to be around the sport. But is he going to want to keep going to every UFC pay-per-view, wherever it may be, and sit there for six hours and, and commentate on the event? Uh, it doesn't always feel like he does. And so I think yeah. he will, pr- knowing how the UFC will stick with a uh, format and just pound it into the ground years after it probably should, I wouldn't expect anyone to like relieve Joe Rogan of his duties anytime soon, especially a a guy who seems as well liked and respected and a guy who has quote unquote paid his dues with the company, et cetera, et cetera, has a lot of loyalty there. But I think the ultimate question will be like, how long does he want to keep doing it? And at some point will he be, will he be like, you know what? I'm going to stay in Texas and watch on TV. 
Yeah. And I mean, I think you're right. I don't think it's anybody calling up Joe Rogan to be like, you know what, we're going to give you a gold watch and we're going to send you on your way. I think it's going to be up to him to decide that, you know, maybe I would I would enjoy it more and have more fun watching the fights, talking about it live on my podcast with my friends, and sitting there with a big-ass cigar telling them about how all those big muscles require a whole lot of oxygen. That's right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. In your, in your and living room, you they all owe their careers being on this podcast. So they're going to be like, yeah you're, yeah, you're totally right, man. He is rocked, Joe. You're absolutely mm-hmm. right. Next question this week comes to us from uh, noted Hollywood character actor Robert Zadar, who writes... <laughs> If Kayla Harrison can't finish out her PFL contract and make 145 by New Year's, is Spencer versus Dumont the last we'll see of the UFC women's featherweight division? Uh, Of course, Norma Dumont gets the split decision victory over Felicia Spencer on Saturday night in the women's 145-pound weight class. We talked about Chris Cyborg and her win over Leslie Smith, Smith over in Bellator at the top of the show. We always get these questions, and it always sort of perennially feels like feels like the women's featherweight division in the UFC is hanging on by a thread. Uh, but I guess in specific answer to this question, I would say two things. Number one, the thing that I always come back to is is like, why? Why would you kill off the women's featherweight division? It's not really costing you any money. The only thing that it is allowing you to do is to have Amanda Nunes run around with those two belts and be the champ champ and give her an extra little piece of flair that you can use to promote her if you want to. And when there is a featherweight title matchup that makes sense and she wants to take it, you can book it. So it's not like there, I don't see real, really any drawbacks to having a women's featherweight division in the UFC, except that people look at it and think like, Oh, it's a joke. There's no rankings. But aside from like actual utility, there's nothing as far as I know, keeping you from having a women's featherweight division in the UFC. So I don't really see the point of killing it. The second thing I would say is I wouldn't doubt Kayla Harrison on any front, man. If Kayla Harrison wants to make 145 pounds, if she can come to a financial agreement with the UFC, she absolutely can do it. And I think that she comes in and is a force at that weight immediately. And so, uh, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt her on, on any question or accomplishment in this sport. And we'll just, we'll see what happens. Well, first of all, yeah, we do appreciate hearing from deceased character actor here, Robert Zadar, who I want to point out was known for having his enormous face and jaw. And then when he played one of the bad guy characters in Tango and Cash, they decided to just name that character face. So that's fun. Also, if I'm not mistaken, the star of the Maniac Cop series, which was uh, one of my favorites back in, you know, late, late really? teens, late teens, early 20s. You get a bunch of guys together to drink 40s and watch Maniac Cop. You're going to have a good time. Uh, I'm looking right now at the IMDb page for Maniac Cop 3 badge yeah. of silence. That's that's how you which, do it. Circa 1992, my guy. That that feels like a title you came up with just throwing darts at a dartboard. I remember uh, but, the end of one maniac cop, cop movie, not to do any spoilers, uh, but like um, the, the main character guy dies and they, they put him in a coffin and lower, lower him down into the ground and they toss his, his badge down there on top of the coffin. And the last scene of the movie, his fucking zombie hand punches up through the top of the coffin and oh, grabs shit. the badge and pulls it down into the coffin. And I was just like, yes, sign me up for more maniac cop and also get me another 40 of this Mickey's malt liquor. 
The poster for Maniac Cop 2 has the tagline, You have the right to remain silent, dot, 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 forever. (laughs) Yes. See? I'm telling you. That's what you're dealing with. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing is, just kind of like you're saying, there being no good reason to do away with it. Like, right now, if you do away with the women's featherweight division, I mean, maybe you lessen the burden a little bit on the matchmakers. You take away a little bit of a headache. But it also, I don't think if you're the UFC, you really want to send the the message, we're closing up shop on this women's division. We've decided to give up on it. Like, you you just, if you can help it, you don't want to send any sort of message that you are shrinking at all or, like, pulling away or, like, contracting, like, from some of this stuff. Plus... Why, like, one of the biggest selling points you have right now whenever Amanda Nunes fights is going to be saying two-division champ. Why take a belt off the poster if you don't right. have to? If, if it's right. not causing you any big headaches, if it's not causing you any trouble to just keep it around, keep it around for a while. And I think, I mean, as far as the idea of, like, Kayla Harrison finishing out her PFL contract, making 145 at the end of the year, if I'm Kayla Harrison, I'm going, you know what, I'm going to hang out here in PFL for one more of these seasons. I'm going to cash another one of those giant-ass million-dollar novelty checks at the end of the year. And in the meantime, I'm going to let Amanda Nunes get a little bit older, Maybe a little bit complacent before I even think about coming over there. And then by the time I do, I'm I'm on some Michael Chandler shit, really negotiating a good deal for myself with the UFC because they actually want me. They actually see me as a really good pickup that they have to go and get and, and negotiate for. And then when I come in there, I want to be ready for them because they're, if they do go and pay big money for you, similar to like the Michael Chandler thing, it's a good chance that they're going to want to make that Amanda Nunes fight pretty quickly after that. So... Yeah, I mean, I hang out. I'm going to get better at this stuff, cash that check, and then go over there when the timing is right. I'm going to put these next two questions together. This one from Alex Penny, who writes, can we get some big ups for your boy, Big Ben Rothwell? And then this one from Mr. Weidman, who writes, he's still my beast boy. So, yeah, Ben Rothwell. Well, you forgot the subject line on this one from Mr. Weidman, oh, which hype says, train. hype train stopped for maintenance. Yeah. There you go. Uh, Big Ben Rothwell in the featured prelim on Saturday beats newcomer, the beast boy, Chris Barnett. Second round guillotine choke submission. Ben, you and I weren't early adapters on the beast boy. Uh, mm-hmm. We we have recently have our coats pulled to the existence of the beast boy. And uh, and so we've only recently begun the film study about Chris Barnett. But we liked what we saw from a lot of different standpoints. And it's kind of a shame, you know, I'm not going to say I I wanted Big Ben Rothwell to lose here because everyone knows the Dark Wizard uh, is one of the favorites of the co-main event podcast. But it would have been cool to see the Beast Boy Chris Barnett do his 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 trademark post win dance out there in the octagon. And we were denied that by this guillotine choke win from Ben Rothwell. First of all, you mentioned the Dark Lord, Ben Rothwell. I like how even when he has to wear that Venom kit, he's going to do what he can with it by wearing just like the hood up on the thing and and not putting his arms in. Like, And he's just going to wear it as a cape, essentially, yeah. when he has yeah. to walk to the ring. Like You you know, you can take the, the Dark Lord robes away from Ben Rothwell, but he is going to make your fight kit into his Dark Lord robes if he has to. And I, yeah. and I appreciate that. Also, though, man, that is a tough draw. When you go, okay, we're going to bring you into the UFC. You have all these matchups they want to make for you that kind of fall apart. Um, you're supposed to fight kind of end of May kind of thing. And then, okay, how about this? Um, why don't you just fight Ben Rothwell, man? Like, you're giving up like nine inches of height or something like that. You know, 
he's super fucking experienced at a really high level of heavyweight MMA. And then want to just go in there and see how you do against Ben Rothwell. That's a yeah. tough, that's a tough welcome to the UFC for Chris Barnett. UFC debut against Ben Rothwell would be rough for anybody. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, we, obviously the beast boy comes out on the short end here. Hopefully we get to see him again. Uh, Here's the next question here from Adam Andra, who writes, I only have a minute to write this before work, but if nobody's asked you, can you address the recent Josh Fabia interview where he slandered just about everybody and accused the NAC of having Diego Sanchez fix a fight? That seems like an incredibly serious accusation to throw out there. Uh, Lord Willen and the Creek don't rise. This is the last time we'll have to talk about Josh Fabia on yeah, any of the so, co-main yeah. event podcast products. Uh, I enjoyed the the story out today. First of all, people are still having Josh Fabi on their podcasts, which goes to goes to show you how many uh, MMA fight podcasts there are out there, and how many people are like, "God, we got to have somebody on the show this week. Maybe we can get Fabia." And he comes on there, and this most recent appearance says a number of things about Diego Sanchez, not all of which I will recap. But perhaps most hilariously says it's clear now that Diego Sanchez was just taking advantage of me to which yeah. I say, LOL motherfucker. First of all, yeah, you mentioned the people out there still having like Josh Fabian and then having him as a guest kind of makes a strong argument for your podcast. Never, ever interviewing guests. If you ask me, because that's yeah. one thing you don't have to worry about on the CME is that we will up an interview Josh Fabia. Um, this stuff that he says in here. For one thing, people pointed this out a lot on Twitter after this came out. But it, they are not wrong that a lot of this feels like classic abuser behavior. Because he seems like Diego Sanchez finally splits from him after everybody can see that this guy is a charlatan and a fraud and taking advantage of Diego Sanchez. And then when Diego Sanchez finally says, all right, you know what, I'm going to split from him. The first thing this guy thinks to do is use all this like private, personal, confidential information that he feels like he has gained from Diego Sanchez. And who knows how much of it is even true. But even if you assume that it is true, you're like, man, if you're, if you're airing some of this stuff about him, I got to assume he told you that in confidence. And you're, your first thing you think to do is to weaponize that information against him. And that is just a, a major red flag like major uh just scumbag behavior on fabia's part plus a lot of this stuff where like he's going to talk about like oh diego sanchez presented himself to me as if he was just like a regular normal person which first of all a no he has never done that in his entire life <laughs> for any of us but then he's like his his counter to that is like oh yeah then we're talking to a lawyer and he mentioned like being in special education in school and i'm like oh wow that's a major like warning sign to me and you're like what the fuck is wrong with you man what the fuck are you talking about? Like all this stuff that he's saying, you just like, I don't know how, if you're the person interviewing him, how do you sit there and, and listen to him do this stuff? Like the, the, the stuff where he's talking about the Nevada athletic, Nevada state athletic commission leaning on Diego Sanchez to get him to throw the fight against Michael Chiesa. That is just grade a nonsense, just lunatic sand stuff. Just to see what, like, open your mouth just to see what comes out. There's no, like, there's so many ways that that is wrong and makes no sense. And 
I can't decide if it's more worrisome that this guy might actually believe some of this stuff or if it's more worrisome if he's just if he if he knows it's all bullshit and he's just doing it just to attack everybody around and just tear down anything he sees. It's absurd, man. If I could make a deal with the devil <laughs> and in exchange for not having to talk about Josh Fabia anymore, uh we had to talk about the Paul brothers every week for the rest of our lives. I would do it. I would do it. So in in this scenario, the devil, like he doesn't want your soul or anything. Mm-hmm. And when you say the wants, devil, I assume you mean Al Pacino. <laughs> he just wants to make us just like do something we don't want to do. Yeah, because it's kind of benign activity for the devil, honestly. It's, it's a low stakes exchange for him. <laughs> All right, I don't know if the devil really engages in those, but okay. Next question this week comes to us from Philip Schmid, who writes: After the last UFC, I was asking myself, is Jared Vandera becoming one of our guys? Free flowing fighting style with an every man's everyday man's gut. Check. Gigantic cut leaking doesn't stop him. Check. Rocking the interview, he's kind of big. Check. I'm interested. Let's all just stay away from his social media. Uh, I mean, that's just... Vandera? That's what, a, that's a, that's is it Vandera or Vend- Vendera? I thought they were saying Vendera on the broadcast. Okay. Uh, Jared, Jared V, big Jared V, uh, gets a victory <laughs> over Justin Tava on Saturday. Heavyweight, you know... The good kind of heavyweight fight, I guess. These guys are out there throwing them thangs for 15 minutes. And after uh, Big Jared V gets warmed up and gets a little cut on his head, he's out there throwing elbows and kicks and all kinds of stuff. I guess this is enjoyable to me. I mean, we can't just let everybody be one of our guys. But uh, but I'm we're intrigued. We're going to need to know a little more. Yeah. I'm gonna, we're going to need gonna to, need get to a little keep a close eye. Yeah. But I'm intrigued. I like what we see so far. Uh, well, a question that somebody was asking me in my mailbag this week was, if if your opponent has a big leaking cut in his head and you get kicked in the balls and you get your five minutes to recover, is it even more to your benefit to take the full five minutes and just stand there and let the guy bleed? <laughs> so, <laughs> like, you know, I don't know how much blood is coming out of there, but, like, if they can't fix it during, like, if they're not allowed to go in there or like, with a cut man and fix it, if he just has to stand there and bleed... Maybe he starts to get a little woozy, you know, maybe, maybe the blood gets in his eyes a little bit. Maybe, maybe something like he just has to stand there and deal with that while you walk around and take your full five. Like, is that the best argument we've ever heard for taking the full five? Yeah. I mean, yeah. You're just hoping he, he passes out from blood loss yeah. and then maybe mm-hmm. you're declared the TKO winner. I guess, I guess it's like they, they're not allowed to come in there and give him a juice and a cookie, you know, <laughs> like he's just got to stand there and bleed. Um, all right, we got a time for a few more here. This one from Tim. He writes, so why hasn't anyone ever told me uh, that if I wanted to escape ground positions, I can just spin out of them on my head like <laughs> Alvis did? Uh, this this was a, this is a, you know what? This is the perfect 2021 MMA highlight. Uh, Rafael Alves on the ground essentially does a breakdancing head spin to get himself back up to his feet. And yeah. exactly the kind of thing that you can put on Instagram or Twitter and people can watch in GIF form and is the prototypical 21st century 2021 MMA highlight. 
Yeah. It's where the Granby roll meets the just like, let's lay some cardboard out on the sidewalk, get the boombox out, and do some classic breakdancing. It's like the perfect marriage of those two things. The point where you're going to see that gif a whole lot from a like fight that's I believe was the curtain jerker on this one, uh, first prelim. And a lot of people are going to see that and be like, oh, okay, that was awesome. That dude who did it is awesome. They won't even look into it enough to realize they lost the fight. Yeah, that's right. Unanimous decision loss. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Neil in Northern Ireland, who writes, seems like the upkick has had something of a resurgent with, with, with a few recent instances of it being used to change fights. The most recent being Liam McCourt at the weekend. Uh, so you can tell he's from Northern Ireland here at the weekend, he says, who upkicked Janae Harding and shortly after finished the fight with a triangle choke. Q Ben shouting, Jiu-Jitsu! Jiu-Jitsu! There you go. Uh, had we all got a little too complacent about upkicks and what they can do? And if so, do you think there are any other moves out there just waiting for their own resurgence? Uh, we have seen some upkicks in the last few weeks here. Um, I would say that's probably a coincidence. That's probably a good example of coincidence in action. But, uh, yeah, man, never forget the upkick. You can get kicked right in your face. Seeing some people get fuck around and get themselves in trouble upkicking somebody who is technically a downed opponent. That's true. So. You, want to watch that? you know what, what I want to see? Make her a resurgence. Picture this. You got somebody there. They're, they take you down. They're on top of you in guard. You got your guard closed. And then you open it just enough to heel kick the shit out of their kidneys. Okay. That is, Remember that move? Since we saw that. Yeah, it's a Hoist mm-hmm. Gracie original. Just lay there on your back, staring up at the ceiling, just slamming that heel over and over again, like into their love handles, basically, and uh, hoping for the best. That's what I want. I want to see. Bring it back. Bringing that back. Bring it yeah. back. And then if you're the guy on top, I assume you're just there going body, body, head, you know, That's right. <laughs> just all day long. <laughs> Next question this week comes to us from Michael Heelan, who writes, I've never watched a season of The Ultimate Fighter. First of all, that's amazing. Uh, then he writes, <laughs> most of the criticisms I hear are that it is tired, unoriginal, and a retread of all the other seasons. If I'm not carrying that baggage, is it worth a watch? He says, additional note, I'm not overly fond of giving the US- UFC as an organization my money or any unnecessary viewership. Apologies to its new ownership, Ben. Uh, <laughs> hey. <laughs> I don't even know that uh, I can answer that I can answer this because a world where I have not seen an episode or a season of the ultimate fighter is so completely foreign to me that I don't even know if I can imagine my way into it. Yeah. First of all, this made me go and look up to see how our endeavor stock is doing. We're down to $28 and 83 cents at the moment, Chad, it's, which it's uh, plummeting. It's plummeting. Yeah. I'm going to be like one of those dudes in like the, the market crash in the twenties or whatever. Just take, taking an old timey revolver out of the cigarette case and just putting it into my mouth. As soon as I see that thing drop below 25, I don't know if I can handle it, man. I don't wow, know if I can hack bleak. that world. That's bleak. But honestly, it is, it is, it is hard to imagine somebody who is in this world enough to email the co-main event podcast, but has not ever seen any ultimate fighter stuff. And honestly, I'm tempted to say, Maybe it would be worth a watch if you've never seen it. Like yeah. if, like maybe the first time through, it'd be a fun time, even if it's them just still doing the same thing they've been doing since 2005. If it's all new to you, maybe it'd still be fun. I but just a lot of it is just dependent on who they have on the season and and what the dynamics end up being. But I mean, I will say, even if you haven't seen The Ultimate Fighter. You've seen a reality show, right? Yeah. Because that is like you're go- it's not going to be completely foreign territory to you. 
you're going to recognize some of the stuff they're doing. You're going to kind of recognize like, oh, there are people here because they're actual good fighters and somebody has to win this damn thing and then hopefully turn into something afterwards. And there are also people here because there's just a bunch of people locked in a house and we want somebody to stir things up and be interesting to watch on TV. Every season has those. And so guess, like you're you're, you're going to recognize that if you if you watch the season of reality TV. The question is if you've never seen the Ultimate Fighter before, do you watch the new season or do you go back and and check out some greatest hits? Would you watch the first season of the Ultimate Fighter? Would you watch season no. 5 with Nate Diaz? Uh or do you just do you wait and you start right in with season uh 35,364, which I think is the one that's about to air? I think I would start with this one. Give yourself a chance. Start with this one. See what they got when they, when they bring it back. And because, uh, I mean, first of all, you definitely do not want to go back and watch the first season because that is stands out to me as like the the realities, like among all reality shows I've seen, that's the season of one where you can tell like they are making this shit up literally as they go. Yeah. They, they have one concept of how it's going to work in the beginning. And by the end, they're clearly rethinking that concept. And there, it's just like cobbled together ideas from other reality shows. Not all of it's worked very well in this fighting show. Like if you are going to go back and watch one, yeah, go back and watch one from a little bit later, at least where they have some of their shit figured out. But like, I think I start with this one, plunge yourself into the, the, the current world of the ultimate fighter, see where we're at. Then, if you like it, and you feel like you have not yet had your fill afterwards, come on back to us. We'll give you some recommendations after that. Next question this week comes to us from Shaggy, who writes, Do we have to make three rosy superlatives for every pre-fight bio? You know, the one that pops up when the fighter is getting jelly on their face. Yes, some fighters have great resumes, but when the third bio point is BJJ Purple Belt or second highest strikes absorbed or two fight win streak, can't we just put something fun like eight four chalupas in one minute or fourth most nut shots in UFC history? What do you guys think of the UFC always making lemonade out of lemons with the pre-fight bios? I will say this, Ben. The UFC has been doing this since I started watching fights. I remember Mm -hmm. it being one of the first things that I noticed about the UFC broadcast. uh, Because back in those days, I was, you know, there there were far less people on the roster and I legitimately did know everything about them. And I would watch these pre-fight bios and be like, huh, that's one way to put it, I guess. When you're out here saying like, he's won two of his last five. And it's just like, yeah, this dude is on a (laughs) three fight losing streak. But I guess you could say it the other way. Uh, it was one of the first things that tipped me off to the notion that when you watch a UFC broadcast, you are watching a thing that is controlled by the promotion, by the company. And you, so you're, it's not like you are getting a journalistic, by the book, uh, you know, unbiased accounting of, of what is happening in the fight you're about to watch. And I guess from a promotional standpoint, I could understand why they wanted to do it that way. Why they, you know, it's better to say uh, this person is is really rolling after their two fight win streak rather than like, this person kind of sucks. They lost their first four fights in the UFC. But at the same time, like it's just a reminder that you are watching a certain interpretation of reality, and it's the interpretation that the company wants you to see. Yeah. No, I'll never forget the watching the first Randy Couture-Vitor Belfort fight when the things listed under Vitor Belfort's name when he entered the cage, one of them was No Known Weaknesses. Yeah. Like treating it as if he were a character in a superhero cartoon. Hails from parts unknown, no known weaknesses. He may have them. 
They just, they have not been discovered yet. That kind of stuff, I went, even as like a young and somewhat naive viewer back then going, huh, that's interesting. But <laughs> you know what? The thing that I really love is when you go to the UFC website and you look up a fighter, like fighter page on there. And, you know, they have the their recent record in the UFC. They have like some cool looking graphs about how their strikes per minute and takedowns defended and stuff like that. But if you scroll down, there's like a Q&A sort of portion where it's like, oh, what do you do for training? Uh, what do you feel like your best attributes are? What are some of your favorite moves? And at least the way it is entered on the UFC website, it looks like almost no editing goes into those at all. It looks right. like they have those guys fill out a form via email or something, send it back, and they'll just copy and paste it without reading it. Because sometimes the stuff will be like, I don't know, man, like I like kickboxing, train two, three times a day, like stuff. And it's just like somebody pointed out that uh, I think it was even the our, our guy, the Beast Boy, Chris Barnett, that one of the attributes he listed in his favor was personality. Like they meant like fighting attributes, Chad. Yeah, but he but if he says person. If you put personality on the form, it's like, you know, putting it on the the teleprompter for Ron Burgundy. They will put it on there. <laughs> Whatever you tell them, they will they will put on the damn website there. All right, getting close to the end here, but here's one from Darcy, the male girl who writes: If Invicta, if an evic, if an Invicta event happens on Axis, does it make a sound? So you had Invicta FC 44 over the weekend on Access TV, its new landing spot. After left the fightpass.com main event, Karina Rodriguez captures the uh, flyweight title. And, you know, we talked about when uh, Invictim made the decision or the announcement that it was going to leave Fight Pass, that the relationship there always seemed like sort of a double edged sword for Shannon Knapp and Invicta, that it's great to be on Fight Pass, or at least was at the time, because you had this association with the UFC and a lot of people had that service and would probably watch you on there just because you were on the UFC streaming service. But it kind of meant that you were also just going to be given all your top talent to the UFC when they came of age in your promotion. Uh, and so you move over to Access TV, which I'm sure gives you more autonomy and may overall be a better broadcast deal. I don't know. But in this day and age, when you got Bellator and uh, the UFC and Ryzen and one FC all happening constantly, uh, what do you think? Is 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 it hard to remember Invicta when it's happening over on Access TV these days? I think the thing is Invicta just needs to make sure more people know that you can stream it on YouTube. Oh, that is not just on Access. I didn't know that. Yeah, I think that that's just a a messaging issue for Invicta to let everybody know that you can like it's on Access TV. But if you don't have that, you can stream it on YouTube. All right. This might be the important thing to know. This might be the last one from Jake who writes subject line. Joe Rogan versus Jake Paul. He writes, it makes so much sense for Jake Paul to fight Joe Rogan in MMA. Both would bring huge audiences. Jake Paul wants to get into MMA, and I'm not sure who would be the favorite. Why is no one talking about this as a possibility? Tons of money to be made for both sides. Jake, I love you, buddy. Thanks for emailing the podcast. We appreciate it. Are you trying to get us killed by our listeners? Like this email encompasses both of the topics that enrage the co-main event podcast listenership the most. Both Jake Paul and Joe Rogan's audience and uh, 
reach as a podcaster and all of his opinions. Are you trying to get them to come for us with pitchforks and torches by sending us? What this I want to know, Chad, I want to know what did you get in this deal with the devil that you made <laughs> where you promised to read this question on the podcast? Well, what, what did I mean, you receive? This is the kind of thing that the devil would pull, right? Like I make the deal with the devil. So we don't have to talk about Josh Fabia anymore. And then the next week, the thrillers books, Joe Rogan, and uh, Clarence Paul in an MMA fight. That's like, that's what would happen. That's how the devil would get us. Special guest referee, Wesley Snipes. Book it. I mean, they, they probably would make a lot of money though. (laughs) And, uh, you know, then you'd have like Nicki Minaj as the musical act. And, uh, we all get out of there having blown $10 million somehow. And <laughs> the next thing you know, we get an email from Triller saying, we know you watched it and you didn't pay us. We'll give you a month. To, we'll give you a right. month to make it right. We're this coming is your, to your one, house. Your one chance. Yeah. Uh, well, we're just going to leave it there. We're going to end things on that note. Remember, if uh, if you want to hear more from us, we'll be over all week over on the Patreon page, patreon.com slash co-main event. We got the live chat on Wednesday, the movie club on Thursday, where uh, little Ben Folks' Christmas dreams finally come true. We're going to watch Tender Mercies for the Tender movie club. Mercies. And then the week after that, we get to watch whatever I want. And then uh, Friday for the Power Hour. We'll be doing all that stuff over at the Patreon page. Feel free to join the team, patreon.com slash co-main event. Thanks for listening. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I'm assuming you haven't watched Tender Mercies yet. Is that what you're saying? No. I mean, if I had watched it, would I, would I be able to even get through this broadcast because of the, my overwrought emotions? I would have to bring yeah. a tissue. I'd be sitting over here crying. So I haven't watched film. it yet. It's a beautiful film about a country singer. Think he, things he goes through. I'm actually uh, going to watch the movie with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper instead. What's that one? Don't you? You know what? Don't you fuck around. Not about Tender Mercies, Chad. No. Not about this. This is no time important. or joke. It's too important. It's too goddamn important. I've been waiting for this for what feels like my entire life.